Um, we have been in a series um, called Nooks and Crannies where we have been talking about um, this idea that God wants his church to take Jesus to every nook and cranny of the earth. And whenever I say church, he's not talking about uh, a building, but he's talking about the people inside the church. He's talking not just about the leaders of the church, but he's talking about all of us. And so we've been looking at the book of Ephesians and, and just seeing ways that God is calling us to take Jesus to every nook and cranny. In the first few weeks, uh, as we've studied the first two chapters or so, um, it, it's been a little bit introspective. We've been looking inside at our hearts, at our, at our souls, and the way that God wants to work in, in our lives before we uh, maybe turn out, uh, begin to be a little bit more external, a little bit more outward focused in, in that goal. And I think that shift begins to take place today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And so if you want to turn there, we're going to get there in just a little while. And that's where we're going to be today. The summer after my freshman year of college, uh, I went to Vietnam, to the capital city of Hanoi, to teach English for a month. Um, it was a summer school program where uh, elementary and all the way through high school age students could uh, attend uh, this program uh, just to, to better or to, to learn English. Um, and so uh, we got to go as a team. There were about nine of us, and each of us had our own little class. And uh, for a month, we, we taught these Vietnamese children, um, taught them English. And it was a, a, it was a pretty unforgettable experience. Um, while we were there, we got to experience much of the Vietnamese culture. Hanoi is a, is a pretty major city. Uh, it's about 8, 000, or 8 million people. Um, and if you've, if you've never experienced traffic in a place where, uh, we'll say that there are loose traffic laws, it is uh, pretty exhilarating and, and scary all at the same time, much like riding a roller coaster, except you're not as strapped in with a little bit more probability of having an accident. It's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, but we got to take different tours of the city, uh, learning about the history of Vietnam, about Hanoi. We got to go to the temple where, uh, although Vietnam is a, an atheist state, Buddhism is the largest practiced religion. We got to experience uh, the Lantern Festival. Maybe you've seen pictures of this, of, of little lanterns uh, that once you light them, they begin to float in the sky. Um, we got to experience that. We got to eat lots of pho, which is uh, a staple food. It's one of the best foods that we had while we were in Vietnam. Uh, I was actually pickpocketed in a busy market while we were there, uh, which isn't necessarily a good thing, but uh, memorable nonetheless. Um, we got to take a field trip uh, with some of our students to... Um, to one of those water parks that you hear about that isn't quite up to code, um, but that means that the water, water slides are a little bit higher and, and a little bit faster and a little bit, a little bit more fun. Uh, we got to go on a vacation up into the mountains of Vietnam while we were there and uh, just hike and explore uh, the mountainous villages in, in Vietnam and, and be amongst uh, the rice farmers and the bamboo farmers, which is such a way of life uh, for them there. So many great memories from that trip. But on the first morning that we were there, I remember noticing two things. Because of, of jet lag, I was up at about 4.30 that morning, and so I stepped outside onto our bedroom balcony, and it was about 95 degrees with about 1,000% humidity. It was hot at 4.30 in the morning. And it didn't get much cooler the whole rest of the month that we were there. We were there in, in July. Uh, but another thing that I noticed that morning were the walls. 
walls around the school complex where we were staying, walls around the neighboring blocks, walls around different gardens and, and parks, and not just fence, but large cement block walls. All through the city, large walls made for keeping unwanted guests out. Our American host who, who lived there in Hanoi lived in an apartment complex surrounded by walls. And this morning, we're going to talk a bit about walls. It's a big part of what Paul talks about here in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. Whenever we think through history, there are a number of famous walls that maybe come to mind. Perhaps the most famous wall ever built was the Berlin Wall. Constructed in August of 1961, this 25-mile-long this wall was erected in the heart of a divided city. But you could say it was actually part of a, a much larger wall, the Iron Curtain. But the Berlin Wall symbolized the separation of east from west with its menacing parapets and threatening barbed wire and its steel roots running down into the sewers. It was made up of concrete segments with a height of 11 feet, usually with a concrete tube on top. Behind that was an illuminated control area, often called the death area, because anytime refugees who, who happened to reach that part were shot with that warning. Then there was a trench that would prevent vehicles from breaking through. Then there was the patrol track and a corridor with watchdogs and watchtowers and bunkers. And then there was a second wall. At least 100 people were killed at the Berlin Wall. But maybe more famously, millions of people rejoiced when that wall came down in the early 1990s. Another famous wall is the Great Wall of China. It's more than 2,000 years old, but it remains one of the great wonders of the world, stretching over 4,000 miles from the mountains of Korea to the Gobi Desert. It was first built to protect ancient Chinese empires from tribes in the north, but it quickly became a symbol of Chinese ingenuity and will. The Bible speaks of a famous wall, the wall of, of Jericho. We read about it in the book of Joshua. Not much of a battle there, but Joshua marched the people of Israel around the wall seven times, and on the seventh they blew their trumpets and shouted at the top of their lungs, and the wall began to crumble. If you grew up in the 90s, you remember this wall between neighbors. These are perhaps some of the most famous walls, but there are walls everywhere. A famous poet named Robert Frost wrote a poem entitled The Mending Wall. In the poem, he describes the New England farmer's job of patching up a rock fence in the spring after the ravages of snow and ice had broken it down during the winter. Together, he and his neighbor, between whose properties the wall ran, patiently put the fence back together stone by stone. Frost was convinced that the wall was unnecessary. This is how his poem begins. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. But his neighbor was maybe of a different mind. He still believed the words that his father had taught him, that good fences make good neighbors. There are fences and walls everywhere. An old pastor once said, the wall is everywhere. All of us know about it. No age or age group has gone unshaped by its pernicious power. Its menacing power moves the length and breadth of human existence. What wall is it? Paul calls it the dividing wall of hostility. It is the wall that separates and fragments and isolates. It is the wall that keeps people apart. 
It makes them suspicious and distrustful of each other. It kills fellowship and breeds prejudice and spreads gossip and sets loose the dogs of war. It takes many forms, but it always remains the same wall wherever we encounter it. That brings us to our text today where, where Paul is going to mention this dividing wall of hostility. So let's jump into our passage this morning. We're going to read all 12 verses here to begin with, and then we'll begin to, to break down what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so there in verse 14, Paul mentions this wall the dividing wall of hostility. And whenever he uses that phrase, wall of hostility, he is using it on on purpose. Because during that time, in the Herodian temple in Jerusalem, there was a wall that separated the Gentile courts from the courts of women, which was the next closer court to the Holy of Holies. And like a big keep-out sign, Archaeologists have found a number of inscriptions on that wall that read, whoever is captured will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. That's, that's pretty hostile. There's a story in the book of Acts where, where Paul is actually accused of, of bringing Gentiles past the Gentile court and he gets thrown in prison. So there is animosity between two people groups. There are the Jews, the Jews called the uncircumcision and those who are Gentile called the uncircumcision or the uncircumcised. And, and this phrase, it was a bit of a pejorative slang term, wasn't, wasn't really a nice way to, to refer to somebody. It's kind of like when one group doesn't like another group, we tend to nickname, nickname them a little bit negatively. Now, I don't know about you, but... Um, Laura and I have a few different movies that, um, no matter how many times we watch them, uh, we can just watch them over and over and over again. The acting, uh, we like the actors in there, we like the storyline. Uh, sometimes it's just a fun movie to watch. Uh, but anytime you're surfing channels and, and you come across it on the TV, right, you got to stop and, and finish watching that. Well, for us, one of those movies is Cheaper by the Dozen 2. Just a great flick. If you've never seen it, 
you need to. It's one of the few instances where we have a sequel that is a little bit better than, than, than the prequel. I want to show a clip from this movie that, that kind of illustrates uh, a little bit of the hostility, the division that we see between Jews and Gentiles. Take a look. How long have you two been married? Six amazing months. Oh, yeah. Happy anniversary. Hey, this is Mike, Jake, and Sarah. They compete in skating contests on a regular basis. Well, that's good. Got to start with the small steps before you take the big ones. Yeah. Mark Baker? Penny the maniac. Well, if it isn't my partner in crime. You're going to get in trouble, Marton. Only if I get caught, Baker. Come here, I want to show you something. Please don't get me in trouble like you did last time. You worry. And how are your kids? Well, I've got three at a private school for gifted children in Lake Forest. Two at Andover, one at Exeter. Calvin's at Yale, finishing up a field study in particle physics, generating a lot of interest there. Elliot was featured in Sports Illustrated, just won the Snowboarding Junior Nationals. Slope style. Well, that was no surprise. <laughs> but I gotta say, Anne's still my superstar. When she finishes Harvard after getting her MBA, she's gonna come work for me at Murtaugh Enterprises. She is definitely corporate material. Something leaks. Thankful nothing like that happened at the wedding last night, right? <laughs> so the division, the hostility between the Bakers and the Murtaugh's maybe isn't quite as intense as that between the Jews and the Gentiles, but I think you get the picture. Paul lays it out pretty clearly what the feelings are about the Gentiles. He says in verse 12 that they are separate from Christ, that they are aliens excluded from citizenship. If you go ahead and toss up that next slide, please. They are foreigners to the covenant. They are without hope and without God. These Gentiles, they have their own religions, and they have their own religious leaders, and they have their own religious traditions, and it's all antithetical to God. And then we have the Jews, who are maybe a little bit prone to haughtiness and pride, and you might hear them say something like, God, God chose one man, our father Abraham, and all the prophets came from our family, and all the priests and the kings, they came from our family as well, and the book is, is primarily about our family. And if you'd like to consider our religion, then, then you've got to become Jewish. You need to learn our language, you need to, to be circumcised, you need to change your diet, you need to celebrate our holidays, and all those pagan things that you used to do, yeah, you need to stop those, and you just need to become Jewish. But even then you'll probably still be just considered a second-class citizen. 
There was hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Yet despite that, the first thing that we see here in Ephesians chapter 2 is that Christ unites what is divided. Christ unites what is divided. Let's look again at verses 11 through 15. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And so Christ ushers in a new system, a new race, a new identity. The Gentiles are saying, you know what, I think we can be Gentile believers in Jesus without all of that Jewish stuff. The Jews are saying, no, 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 no. It's in the book. Abraham started it and every man since has followed suit. But Paul comes along, he says, no, 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 you all need to be in Christ, a new man. And so their identity is no longer uncircumcised Gentile or circumcised Jew, it is in Christ, reconciled together as a new man. And I want to talk about that phrase in verse 15, one new man, specifically looking at the word new. There are two Greek words that we have in scripture for new, and the first one is chronos, which is a reference to time. But the other is, is kainos, and it means unprecedented or, or brand new. And our cell phones, our phones actually serve as a good example for this. Whenever we use the word for new, for you and me, more often than not, we are talking about the new version of, hey, did you get the new iPhone? And whenever we say that, we mean, hey, did you get the new iPhone 11 or the new iPhone XR? Did you get that new version? But this word actually means First ever. You did, you did what? You talked to somebody who was in a different building all the way across town? That, that's not possible. No, 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 it's, it's new. It's, it's a phone. What's a phone? You speak into a receiver and it travels through a wire and somebody else on the other end can hear you and, and you're like, can you hear me now? Brand new, never heard of, unprecedented. That's what happens in this text. Christ has done what no one else can do. Christ unites what is separate by creating one new man. The old hostility, the old this wall exists, that's, that's over. Hostility is dead. How is that possible? Because, because you're one now. You're the same. H- how are we the same? We have different backgrounds, different experiences. We are brought near to each other by the blood of Jesus. There's no front of the bus, back of the bus, no first and second class For Christianity, God's a father who loves all of his kids, black and white, rich and poor, young and old, Asian, Hispanic, male, female, Democrat, Republican. He loves all of his kids equally and he places the Holy Spirit in each of them and they each have access to their dad. There's no dividing wall of hostility. We don't really have time today to look at Acts chapter 10, but it's in this chapter that we begin to to see this this idea take shape in the first church. A story of of Peter getting a vision from God where he realizes that he needs to go and and preach to a man named Cornelius who's a Gentile. 
And so Christ unites what is divided. And the second thing we see today is that Christ unites God and sinner. Christ unites God and sinner. Starting halfway through verse 15, it says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. By looking through history, it's, it's kind of incredible to think that Christ brought reconciliation in the midst of such hostility between the Jews and, and the Gentiles. But even more amazing, God in Christ reconciles God and sinner. Think about the differences between us and God. Creator, created. Holy, sinner. Infinite, finite. God lives in heaven, we, we live down here. He lives in a holy place, we live in an unholy place. He lives where there is no sin, we live in a place that is filled with sin. He lives in a place where there is no death and we live in a place where death is all around us. And we've sinned against God and the result is that there is hostility between us and him. We've built a wall and we have spiritually lived our lives apart from God. And so God comes as Jesus, leaving his holy place to be Emmanuel, to be God with us. He comes to seek and to save us. And what he does is he lives without sin and he de declares himself to be God, which is ultimately why we put him to death. And, and he dies. And it says that we are saved. We are reconciled through his body, by his blood. Jesus takes upon himself all of our sin and the penalty of sin, which is death. And it says that he kills the hostility by dying in our place. A little bit past the court of Gentiles and the court of women in the temple was the holy place or the sanctuary. And only the priests were allowed in the holy place. And at the back of the sanctuary was the holy of holies, the most holy place, which was separated by a huge curtain. And only on the holiest day of the year would the holiest priest venture into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices to God? And while Jesus hangs on the cross, crying out, taking his last breath, the Gospels tell us that that curtain was torn in two. The wall that separates us from God is done away with. And Paul reminds us of the result of Christ's reconciling work in, in verse 18. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Christ unites God and sinner. Now if you were to go to Israel and, and tour the Holy Land and tour what is left of the temple, you would see enormous hand-cut stones, some of them weighing over 400 tons as the foundation of the temple. And in a time before electricity and in modern technology, it's pretty incredible to think what links it took to set them. But I think what is even more amazing is that God is building a new temple called the church. And you and I are the stones that God is using. And so the last thing that we see is that Christ unites sinners for mission. Christ unites sinners for mission. 
It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The cornerstone is, is Jesus, which is to say that everything rises and falls with with him, it's all about Jesus. When you lay the foundation of a building, the most important thing is to lay the cornerstone correctly. If you lay it incorrectly or you lay the wrong cornerstone, whatever you've built will eventually begin to crumble. You don't want your marriage to, to crumble, then make Jesus the cornerstone. You don't want your kids' faith to crumble, then, then make Jesus the cornerstone. You don't want your character to crumble, then to make Jesus the cornerstone. Everything starts with him. And then Paul says that there are the apostles and the prophets, and so we have the New Testament and the Old Testament leaders, those who are in large part responsible for giving us the Bible, giving us the scriptures. And so Jesus, Jesus is the cornerstone, and God's word fills in our foundation. And then he says that God is building the church, something that God is doing. And he, he saves people, and he stacks them together as bricks in the church, and the church just keeps growing. And we become the visual representation of the reconciliation that happens through Jesus. And we have all of these variances in our lives. Your ethnicity, your background, your socioeconomic status. But what ultimately matters, and will matter long after there's no more Amazon or no more Apple, even no more United States of America will be that you are children of God, bought by the blood of Christ, put together for his kingdom. And in 2,000 years or 5,000 years or, or 10,000 years, whenever the Lord Jesus decides to return, all the nations will have come and gone, all the companies will have come and gone, but the church will still be there. Christ reconciles Christ unites sinners for mission. I've yet to mention the nooks and crannies that we've been talking about over the past few weeks. And so here it is this morning. If we hope to be the vehicle by which God takes Jesus to every nook and cranny of the earth, then we have to break down the dividing walls of hostility. And you don't need me to tell you that those walls still exist probably more visibly and, and prominently than they have in a very long time. And so we aren't just to sit back and to watch it from the pews. It is the capital C church's job. It is yours and my job to take Jesus to every nook and cranny so that they can be reconciled to God. I think this is the only passage in Ephesians that doesn't have any kind of imperative in it any kind of call to action, anything to do. And so I think it's fitting this morning for us to reflect. And so here's my question for us. What prejudices do I have in my life? What prejudices do I have in, in my life? And I don't know about you, but whenever I hear that word prejudices, my mind it automatically just conjures up thoughts of, of race. But maybe you don't have any racial prejudices. Maybe you have a social prejudice. Maybe you have a political prejudice. 
or generational prejudice or, or maybe you have a religious prejudice. My prayer for us this morning is that while we seek to take Jesus to every nook and cranny of the earth, that our identity in Christ far outshines any differences or divisions or hostility we experience. Let's pray.